is from Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 to 8, and also 2, 1 to 6. Daniel's training in Babylon. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were, enter, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were from, some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Balthasar, um, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. He asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. From chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dreams and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dreams was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me now. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Happy Thanksgiving to you. I'm glad you're able to come in on this long weekend to worship together and to hear from God's uh, word together. Uh, as we have been announcing Alpha, it is happening this Wednesday, so please keep uh, that in your prayers. Uh, our uh, English administrative assistant, Roy, he printed out some cards for us for you to bring home to remember to pray and to invite your friends. So you can, on your way out, maybe grab uh, one of those. But if you're joining us for the first time here, October is Missions Month here at Lord's Love. And we started last week talking about salt and light. And this week we're continuing, continuing on with uh, this series. And in case you missed last week, uh, we gave a preview of what's to come. Uh, next week, Jackie Wong from Edupavi, the ministry that serves in uh, Guatemala. She's coming to share about her ministry there. Then October 23rd, uh, Jessica Leung is sharing about her missions work uh, with OMF and I was sharing last week, kind of excited for that. As we're preparing for that, uh, her and I will have a conversation, interview style, right up here on the platform. Then October 30th, we have Reverend Samuel Lee from Lord's Grace uh, joining us, and he'll share a message about his work with uh, the uh, First Nations Reserves here in Vancouver and some of the other local uh, ministry projects that he's uh, a part of. 
Uh, also, it gives a little bit of a break. I, I'm sure as, as much as you love hearing from me, uh, it's been seven weeks of me preaching as well. So a little bit of a break as well to hear from different voices. And I believe that God speaks through the body uh, from, different, uh, from different parts of the body, uh, even those from the same message as well. So today here uh, is a book. Uh, we're preaching from the book of Daniel. We're going to learn what it means to contextualize the gospel. What does it look like to, to live out our faith in our current a day and age. And you might be familiar with some of these paintings uh, that, that have gone through uh, the last, uh, well, many years. Uh, Vincent van Gogh, he's a Dutch painter in the 1800s, and the artwork has been renowned across the whole world. His artwork is interesting because his artwork in his lifetime was actually considered to be rubbish. Uh, people didn't pay attention to him. Uh, he only sold one painting, I think, uh, in, his, in his lifetime. Uh, but we've come to know, uh, know his uh, artwork for its honesty, for its color, for its beauty, for its vibrancy, and how it really just speaks to you as you, as, as you look at it. Uh, and, and it's interesting here, even though we look at paintings, like some of his most famous paintings here, like Starry Night painted in 1889 and the Cafe Terrace at Night in 1888, uh, you look at that and you're like, wow, he must have been an amazing painter, and he was, but he wasn't well-respected, and he actually died penniless, uh, not having much uh, to his own possessions. And here's another one of his uh, paintings later on in his years called Eternity's Gate. Uh, that kind of, you can feel the anguish that he was experiencing and what he was feeling as he was in and out of uh, some uh, hospital institutions at that time. Uh, it, this isn't him, uh, this isn't a painting of himself, but uh, some of the artists and museums talk about this piece as, as a self-expression of how he's feeling. And then uh, there's this piece uh, called Tree Roots. As you look at this painting called Tree Roots, it's, you look at it, you're like, well, what am I looking at? And it's tree roots. Uh, it's, it's trees uh, on the side of a bank that's been eroded, and you see some of the roots that's been exposed. And when you look at, why am I showing you this painting? As you look at this painting called Tree Roots, and you compare it to uh, the ones I've shown before, like Starry Night uh, in the cafe painting, you might be like, well, I don't know if it's just as amazing. Uh, and I, I don't know if I understand this painting. I'm not sure if it's as beautiful as the other ones. But what if I told you that this was one of his last paintings before he took his life? What if I told you that this was one of his last paintings before Vincent van Gogh took his life? Does that not give the context to this painting a little bit more, maybe? Does this not help you see into the picture, maybe into what's going on in his life? What's, what's he wrestling with? Uh, inside of his own heart. You see, I start off with this uh, maybe this uh, deep and dark uh, story of Vincent van Gogh because context matters. Uh, context matters. It helps us to interpret the world, helps us to understand the world, helps us to see what's going on in the world. And the context matters in terms of helping us to understand what the other person is feeling and what they are going through. And context matters. And how we contextualize the gospel as we're talking about Missions Month matters. How we contextualize the gospel matters. How we bring it out into the world. How we paint the picture. How our lives become the song as we've been singing of the gospel matters. Uh, how we live out the gospel matters because people get an image of what Jesus is like through the life that we live. And the big idea is a little bit of a longer one this morning. We contextualize the gospel by learning the culture while living uncompromisingly, uh, compromisingly and seeking God in all things. I couldn't think of a better word. Uh, than, than that one. Uh, and we learned this all from the book of Daniel in terms of how he 
lived in Babylon as a Hebrew man. Uh, we, we learn about him, how he contextualized the gospel, how he related to God, and how he lived that out in a place called Babylonia. And I'll explain what we mean by contextualize in a little bit. By, by gospel, if you're joining us for the first time, gospel simply means good news. It's the good news of Jesus, of how, he li- uh, how he's God, he lived among us, and he died a death he didn't deserve, so that for those that believe in him will have eternal life, will experience this goodness, this good news for those that experience this God. And, and my prayer for us this morning, as we hear the word, is that may our lives, as we go through Missions Month, is may our lives be a living exegesis of the Bible, a living exegesis of the scriptures, that as, as we live our lives, the people, that our lives, as the way we live it out, would unpack the scriptures for people, that they would see Jesus in us in the way that we live, in the way that we contextualize the scriptures and we, as we contextualize the gospel, that our prayer, my prayer this morning is that our lives would be a full display of the gospel uh, in the culture that we live in. But what is culture? What is culture? How do we understand culture? I've been saying that word a few times now. Last week I mentioned how culture is what we choose to do. So in our society, why do we choose to do what we choose to do? Like why? I was sitting in, and this is not true of all of Vancouver, but it's true for many parts of Vancouver. Last, uh, earlier this year, it's, it's rainy Vancouver in February, something like that. It was cold. I was sitting in a local cafe, s- sipping a cup of coffee, which is already very... <laughs> Vancouverish, uh, and sitting in a cafe, and my, 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 um, in the program I'm in, I was tasked with this assignment of sitting there and just observing people around me. And before, before I knew it, I realized that we were all wearing the same color, that many of us were wearing a, a toque uh, or a beanie, depending on which part of the world <laughs> that, that you're from. Many of us uh, were wearing, I wasn't, uh, wearing blundstones uh, at that moment, and we all had a MacBook. Uh, sitting there in this one cafe. I was like, wow, you know, I don't know anyone here, but I know everyone here. Uh, I resonate so much. Like, why do we do what we do? That's culture. What we choose to do, even though we might not know why we do it, culture is what we choose to do. As Eugene Peterson puts it, uh, he calls culture the atmosphere that we swim in. That simply as we go in, culture is the atmosphere that we go through. Uh, It's the waters of life that we swim in. Maybe we don't realize, because the question of like the, the philosophical question, do fish realize they're swimming in water? I was like, well, I don't know, but we can talk about it. Uh, let's write, write a paper uh, about that. But I can say with some certainty that culturally, and maybe in Vancouver specifically, but the world generally, culturally, we live in a place and a time that's not friendly to God nor Christians. That this message of God and the gospel is being pushed more and more to the side. So how do we engage with such a culture? Uh, Richard Niebuhr, in his book, uh, he's an American theologian, uh, wrote this classic book, Christ and Culture, in a, a 1951. And it's been influential for the past 60 years. It's a heavy book. It's a dense book. I read this book first uh, back in my, my um, Christianity and Culture class uh, with Dr. Brian Cooper. He came to preach earlier this year at Acts Seminaries. And I didn't fully understand it then, and I still don't really understand it now as I go back uh, into, uh, into that book. But Niebuhr, he defines culture as the social life of humanity, the environment created by human beings in the areas of language, habits, ideas, beliefs, customs, social organization, inherited artifacts, technical processes, and values. So he kind of lays out in our culture, in our day and age, in our society and context, the certain things that we do and why we do it. And he summarized it into these five points. 
Hope you follow along with me. Getting a little geeky here. Uh, Christ and culture, summarizing to, to, to five things as Christians, how do we view Christ and how do we view culture? How do we associate the two? Firstly, it's Christ against culture, where we see uh, Christ as the opposition to culture. And this is one of the quite extreme views where there's some uh, denominations, maybe some beliefs that drive them to live into different areas of the world, separate themselves from culture entirely. Then there's Christ of culture, which is agreement between Christ and culture. And this is more seen the other end. So there's Christ against culture, where we silo ourselves. And then there's the other side, the Christ of culture. And this is seen as more liberal, liberal, liberal Protestantism, uh, some call it. And then there's Christ above culture, where it's a combination of both, that we realize that we live in culture, it's the atmosphere that we are in, but ultimately Christ is supreme. Christ is the one that we follow. And then now there's Christ in, and culture and paradox, where we believe that uh, the, the belief is culture is good, but it's tainted with, with sin. So we only take some and we leave others, and that's that. And lastly, there's Christ, the transformer of cultures, this idea that since Christ redeems culture, Christians should be in all things and transform it. Now, in all points, there's, there's points we believe and there's points that we hold on to and points that maybe you don't settle on and we don't agree upon. But maybe the best way to navigate through this question of which one it is that you believe in and how do we engage in culture is through something called contextualization. It's the answer to which one we listen to or which thought we, uh, we follow in, it all depends on con context. It depends on who you're with. It depends on how you understand the gospel. It depends on uh, the context of the world that we're living in. Because if I ask you, which paradigm do you follow? Is it one of them? Is it none of them? Is it multiple? You're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Doug, and just move on. Uh, how would you answer this question? And the question really is how you see the world and how you understand the world, it matters. It affects how we read and see scripture. You see, we understand this to be true, that Jesus, he came for us and he died for us. He ultimately contextualized the gospel for us as he lived on this earth. As he lived and he did all the miracles and the healings, walking on water, engaging with politics, engaging with people, he was showing us what it means to live out the life of the gospel. Now, ultimately, he showed us that no matter how far you feel like you are from God and where you find yourself in the gospel story, that you are never forgotten, that God knows you, that God loves you, and that he lived this life that displayed that. And for us as Christians, that's the number one call, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is this, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves, that he, Jesus, displayed that and contextualized that perfectly for us. As I quote from uh, Juan Sanchez, he's the chair of the Gospel Coalition, which I quote from quite often, and he's a pastor down in Texas. He says this, contextualization is the word we use for the process of making the gospel and the church as much at home as possible and given con a cultural context. The question is not whether we're going to contextualize. The question facing every believer in every church is whether we will contextualize well. So what he's saying there is that our lives, it is an exegesis. It is an uh, interpretation of Scripture that we, when we live it out, before we even say anything, people can tell what you believe by the way that you live. That's kind of what he's arguing, that whether we want to contextualize the Scriptures or not, we're giving an exegesis uh, to the passage uh, that, through the Scriptures that we read. Whether we like it or not, when we call ourselves Christians, we're, we're displaying God 
with our lives. So how do we contextualize well? I, I spoke on some of the challenges we have uh, in, this, uh, in this way, uh, in this a category last week, how do we speak about it, a culture, and how do we engage in culture in a helpful way without entirely giving up our beliefs, where we lean so far to one side that we don't know who we are anymore, or so far the other way that we hide from the world and we don't go into the world and engage with it. How do we be in the world but not fully succumb to the ways of the world? A few more quotes here. David Sills is another missiologist. Missiologists is, are those that specialize in missions, the theology of missions. Uh, some mistakenly believe that contextualization means making Christianity look like the culture. How, however, contextualization is simply the process of making the gospel understood. In fact, much of what many call contextualization is simply an effort to be trendy or edgy. It may be effective, it may attract a hearing. It may be offensive, may not be offensive to hearers, but that is not contextualization, that is marketing. Ooh. Our call as people of the word is to make the gospel understood. That's what contextualization means. It's not to make it trendy or it's not just to go around and to fit into culture, though there's that, there's that gift and a skill to that. It's actually to make the gospel understood in the context that we're called to. And each one of us, are, we belong to a different context uh, in the city. As Leslie Newbigin, another, another theologian uh, and, and missionary, he says this, when the church tries to embody the rule of God in forms of earthly power, it may achieve that power, but it is no longer a sign of the kingdom. That we may do a lot of things that we think are great for the kingdom of God, but ultimately, if it's succumbing to the ways of the world, it's doing things that the world does, it, it's not any different, and people can't tell the difference, ultimately, it's not a sign of the kingdom. It's not pointing people to Jesus. It's pointing some people to, to something else. So I keep asking this question. You're like, Doug, answer the question. What might contextualization <laughs> look like for us? Thank God for the book of Daniel and how we learn what it looks like to contextualize the scriptures. You see, the overarching theme of the book of Daniel is the absolute sovereignty of God, how God is in control in all things, no matter how bad the situation looks, no matter how terrible that moment is, no matter how painful it seems, no matter how grim it looks in that moment, God is still in control. That's the overarching theme of Daniel. And some other themes are also the power of prayer, uh, and also God's plan of redemption, we see that throughout this book. And you see, like, things were getting really bad for the people of Israel. In 605 BC, when King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonians, uh, Evelyn, our scripture reader, well done with all the names. <laughs> that was a lot of names uh, right there. But King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians, he came, was taking over the area of Judah where the Hebrew people were living. And King Nebuchadnezzar and his army eventually surrounded the city of Jerusalem. And the king of Jerusalem, he... He gave up. Uh, he, he said, you know what? It's no, not worth fighting. So uh, we're going to give up here and because he knew it's futile. So they surrendered and Nebuchadnezzar took with him to Babylon some of the Hebrew children, which is some of the passages that, uh, that was read there. Then there are two rebellions. Things weren't all good. They're like, hey, Jerusalem, you can keep doing your own thing, kind of. Uh, but there are two rebellions that happened in 598 BC. We read that uh, and that's where the book of Ezekiel comes in where Ezekiel laments and cries over his people. And then Judah rebels again in 586 BC, where Nebuchadnezzar comes back this time and says, enough of that. 
enough of the city. And that's where we read much of Jeremiah uh, weeping over the city. And we read in Psalm 137, uh, verse 1, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. So this imagery of this painting here, of uh, this is called The Flight of the Prisoners, painted in 1896 by James Tissot, a French artist. Uh, this painting, the exile of the people of, ba- of, of Jerusalem leaving their city, being cap- captive by Babylon as they're weeping uh, and sad, leaving their home, uh, their home city as Jerusalem is burning uh, in the background. So while all of this is happening, while the city is besieged and, and people are in trouble, the Hebrew children that were taken away to Babylon were being raised in the king's court. That's where Daniel comes in. He was one of the captives, one of the children that were, the, uh, children that were uh, capt, uh, taken away captive. And, and they were raised in the king's court of Babylon. And this is the setting of chapters 1 to 3. I'll read it for yourself. I try to give a brief summary uh, of the historical context of what's going on there. But we read about how these children were put into schools to learn Babylonian culture and to become high-ranking people in the empire. Now you're thinking, Doug, what does it have to do? That's back in like 600 BC. We're living in 2022. Uh, what does that have to do with me here? Well, as Christians in the world, we also don't belong to this world. Even if you call yourself not a Christian, do you know that this isn't it? That this world isn't it? That this world that we see isn't all there is to Life And just as how the people back then were in exile, we too in this moment, if we believe in scripture and we believe in this God, we believe in Jesus, we too don't belong to this world because we are also exiles that are wandering, trying to find a home. In 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Foreigners and exiles, have you ever felt that? Where you're living and walking in Vancouver and the lower mainland, wherever it is you find yourself, you're like, I don't know, life must be more than this. This can't be it. There's this longing and this desire for more in life. And that's because there is more. We know this in our Bibles. We know this from Jesus who lived, that there is more that's waiting for us, a place where there's no more pain, no more weeping, no more, no, no, no more tears, no more fears. There's a place waiting for us that this world we live in we don't belong. We are foreigners and exiles. And maybe that explains the tiredness that you're feeling and that you're experiencing. But God knows. God knows that pain. God knows that tiredness. God's saying there is a home for you. There is a place for you. But meanwhile, hold on tight. Even though you're in exile here on earth, there's still a place and a purpose and a mission for you. Even though we're exiles, it doesn't mean we neglect or we don't care about the things of the earth. You're like, well, I'm in exile. I don't care about anything <laughs> on earth. I don't care about the people. No, that's not what God's saying. Remember last week, we're meant to be the salt of the earth. We're meant to be the light of the world. And we see here in this passage that we, we learn about the culture as we were salt and light of the world. We don't compromise morally and spiritually. And ultimately, we seek God in all things. And that's the first point here today, that for us to contextualize the gospel, for us to live a life on mission, for us to make a difference in the world, we need to be in the world and to learn the culture. It's to learn what's going on around us. In Daniel 1, uh, 1 to 3, we read this. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. But focus on this, in this last section here. 
he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. If you were captured, what would you have done? You're a Hebrew man or a woman, and you're captured into the setting, into this foreign place, and they're teaching you things that you weren't taught before, that's against your culture, against what you know, what would you do? Think of Niebuhr, the five points. <laughs> Which one would you do in that moment? Well, in this context here, we learn that it's important to learn. That they were in that context, and Daniel was well-educated. He took on the literature. He, they taught them the language. He took on all the knowledge of the Babylonians. Yes, there's things in our culture that we don't succumb to. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But what if our attitude is to go in in order to contextualize, in order to reach the people around us, is to learn about the people around us. I'm not talking about foreign land. I'm talking about right here in Vancouver. I'm talking about your classmates. I'm talking about your coworkers to learn about them, learn about why they believe what they believe in. This past week, I had a conversation with uh, the BC Regional Director of InterVarsity. It was a fascinating conversation. He was like, yeah, my, my wife is part of the PAC, the Parent Advisory Committee of, uh, of their kids' school, and she's the co-chair of it. I'm like, oh, what's that like? Oh, it's very interesting. The other co-chair, yeah, introduced herself. And then the second thing she said about herself is that she's a witch. I'm like, what? Sorry? Could, could you explain? That? I think you need to unpack that. <laughs> A little bit. He kind of said it so nonchalant. He's like, oh, yeah, like a witch. You know, not the cauldron type, you know, but a witch. Like, you know, gemstones and curses and all those kind of things. I'm like, huh. Interesting. I'm like, well, what, what made her join into the pack? He's like, well, actually, it's to encounter people. It's to learn about the other parents that are in the school in order for me to live my life among them. Uh, they know I'm a Christ follower. They know what I believe in. And as we share and exchange these stories, it's interesting the gospel conversations uh, that come on here. So I don't know what it looks like for you to learn the culture. Like there needs to be some uh, smartness, some shrewdness, uh, some protection of your heart as well. But learning the culture might mean spending time with people who look different from you. Just asking questions, uh, knowing their story. It might mean taking seriously what others are to say. I think as Christians and we are known uh, infamously in this way to be judgmental in the world. And it's often maybe it's because when someone shares honestly their thoughts, we dismiss them. We don't take the time to hear their thoughts. We don't take the time to learn about them, to earn the trust in order for us to share the gospel as well. So it might be taking seriously what others are saying. It might mean paying attention to what others believe. And not just what they believe, but why they believe it. Why they believe what they believe. Ask these questions. Learn the culture. Do the hard work. I have the, the, um, I have the, uh, my, 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 my professor's voice in my mind from seminary, where it's like many of you, as my pastoral theology professor, saying many of you can exegete the scriptures really well, but how many of you can exegete people? How many of you can read people? How many of you can understand people? How many of you can relate and walk with people? You can explain the scriptures, but you're missing people altogether because you don't know who it is that you're talking and speaking to. So here, contextualizing the gospel might mean learning the culture, learning the people around you. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says this in chapter 9, 22, 23. You wonder how he did this. To the weak, I became the weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And you wonder how Paul was able to do that. Maybe he was going around learning learning what people are talking about, hearing, being in the conversations, walking in the marketplace and hearing these conversations that are going on. Be like, oh, what are you guys talking about? 
may I join? May I sit down? May I have a conversation with you? Maybe that's what Paul did. And then we read on and later on in verse 17 that Daniel and his four friends, they were well taught. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. We see here that God gave them this knowledge. God gave them this understanding. We think that when we go into, uh, into culture, that maybe God is against that, that God doesn't want us to be among people. But here we see in their context of captivity, in this moment, that God gave them favor to learn. And ultimately, God gave Daniel and his four friends a way to preach the gospel and to display God uh, to the Babylonian people. So that's first, learn the culture. Secondly, be morally and spiritually uncompromising. Don't compromise in your beliefs. Yes, go learn the culture. Yes, go and be with people. Yes, maybe learn the practices, but watch yourself. Check yourself, right? Watch yourself where you are morally and spiritually at. Uh, Daniel 1.8 says this, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. A little bit of backstory, they're feeding the people, uh, feeding the prisoners, or kind of prisoners, uh, all kinds of food. Uh, and Daniel's like, no, I'm not going to eat any of that uh, because... I'm Hebrew, and this is, these meats have been dedicated to some other god. They're defiled. I'm not going to come in contact with unclean meat, especially unclean meat that's been dedicated to a heathen god as under heathen worship. So I'm not going to eat that. So give me vegetables instead. And the people that's taking care of them are saying, no, you can't eat vegetables because you're going to look worse than those that eat meat. Uh, and then later on, Daniel's like, see, God's favors with me. I'm eating vegetables and I'm fine, uh, proof text for vegetarians, uh, that it's okay uh, to eat <laughs> in, in that way. But no, that's the point here, he's saying that like, he won't defile himself. He's saying, like, I'm not going to succumb, uh, there's a line, I'm going to learn the culture, I'll learn the language, I'll be with the people, and learn why they believe what they believe, but there is a line. There is a line that I'm not willing to cross because of my belief, because of my faith. Where's your line? Do we think about that as we walk into culture, that we just go in and like, yeah, okay, Doug, you know, Doug told me to go and be in culture. I'm going to go and succumb and expose myself to all these things, all these, all these experiences in the world. But we go out with shrewdness, with smartness, with the spirit in us, and, and discerning, where is this line where you're succumbing to the ways of the world, where you're compromising in your faith, you're compromising morally and spiritually. See, rather than break faith with God, Daniel, he was willing to risk expulsion, even risk death from, the royal, uh, for, from, Bab, uh, from being killed in Babylon for his disobedience. And this really shows us where Daniel's priorities are at. That's the question here. Where are priorities at? When we go out into the world, is it to listen to our own uh, pleasures, our own desires, or the pleasures and desires of others, or is it to follow God, to honor God, and to seek God? Eugene Peterson in his book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, says this, when an ancient, ancient temptation, I might have it up there. Nope, I don't have it up there. When an ancient temptation or trial becomes a feature in the culture, a way of life that is, that is expected and encouraged, Christians have a stumbling block put before them, and that is hard to recognize for what it is. For it has been made into a monument, gilded with bronze, and bathed in decorative lights. 
That's Daniel chapter 3, uh, the erection of the statue that brought, uh, that was made of gold, but the statue that they're going to worship. Um, so for us here as Christians, there's things that we live in cultures that seem good, that seem attractive, that seem like it's something of God, but we have to be discerning. We have to see whether it is something that's of God, whether it's something that honors him, or whether it's something that it, it, it's going to glorify him. Because what the church often deems as beautiful, the world deems as ugly. That is not beautiful. That's not the way you should live. That sounds boring to me. Why would you do something like that? Like, you know, life, this is what's exciting. Go do X, Y, and Z. That's the voice of the world. But we follow the voice of God because his voice, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And he leads us to good things. Another quote here, which I had have up here, John Piper in his massive work, 754 pages, uh, Providence. I was talking to my brother, Duncan. He's reading through it. It's taken him months. Uh, I'm going to beat him. Uh, <laughs> uh, re- reading through this massive work. Uh, and the book is it, it, so good. It just talks about God's providence and what he has. And he says this in the book, when it comes to how much God controls and how much he controls, we must be told by him. We dare not bring to him or to his word governing assumptions that are alien to his words, no matter how widely held they are in any given culture. So he talks about this in the sense that we don't add to God's word. We have to read scripture rightly and understand our context rightly. We don't add to God's word. It's God's words that's over us. God's word has the final say. God's word reigns supreme, uh, that we follow him and what he says. And he continues on in his book saying this, in non-modern cultures, his shrewdness plays on people's true awareness of his reality and controls them with fear. Non-modern, he's associating to uh, developing kind of places uh, in the world, not much of the Western world. So in the non-modern cultures, he's saying uh, Satan, uh, his shrewdness, he plays on people's true awareness of his reality and controls them with fear. But in modern and maybe Western cultures, he holds people in his sway in incognito, happy with their disbelief in his reality as he leads them by the illusion that their uh, deification of self is an experience of autonomy and freedom, when in fact they are a perfect sync with his desires. His desires meaning Satan's. In a sense that when we don't have the shrewdness, much of the West, we think that this life is it. We think that everything is good, and that is exactly the scheme of the evil one. That there is no afterlife. There is nothing more to life than this. Just focus on your work. Get all the joy you can here. Get all the pleasure that you can here. And that is the tactic of the evil one here. So instead of separating ourselves with culture, we're just like, this is it. This is all there is. So don't compromise. And not, when we don't, by not compromising, it's about this awareness that we are living in culture that's not of God. It's having this shrewdness, this understanding of who, uh, what God calls us towards, to have this line and I, I'm, I, you might be like, Doug, just give it straight, straight to me. What is this line? And I can't say that because each one of us has a different context. For some, it might be like, hey, you shouldn't talk to that witch. Maybe. If that's your history, your context, you wrestle with the occult, and that's going to be a burden for you, and that's going to pull you away from God. But from, for some others, it might be like, hey, yeah, that's your, your context and which you should go into. I can't answer it with one uh, one, uh, with one answer, because each one of us has different lives, different gifts, different stories that God is uh, painting a different picture with. But what I do know, and maybe this would help, is the third and last point, is that no matter what it is, and we learn this from Daniel, is to seek God in all things. So we learn the culture, we don't compromise, 
And as we're in the culture, as we're swimming in the atmosphere of culture, in all things we seek God. Daniel chapter 2 says this. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from, God of, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. So very quickly, I don't have time to go over the full context of chapter 2. Read it for yourselves. But the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has, he can't sleep, has a terrible dream, and he asks his wise men to come to interpret the dream so he can find some peace. Except here's the kicker. He doesn't even tell them what the dream is. All right? So he, imagine you get summoned to the court, and you're like, hey, can you help me interpret this dream? And you're like, okay, let's do it. And he's like, okay, interpret it for me. He's like, well, what's the dream? Well, that's part of the task for you to tell me uh, what the dream is even. And the, all the wise men are like, surely, king, there's no one in all this land that could ever do something like this. And the king Nebuchadnezzar is like, you're just buying time off with your heads. And he executes, he sends an order to execute all the wise men. And that includes Daniel. So that includes Daniel. That wasn't even there. He just gets an order uh, that's like, hey, Guys, you need to get executed because you, you're going to die for something you didn't do. do. Uh, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> but Daniel, he goes in chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 15, he actually goes towards the king and he says, I'll take this on. And I'm going to do this with the king's power, uh, with God's power. And God's going to show up. And he goes to his friends, which is the passage I just read in verse 17. He's like, I don't know why I just did that. I'm in trouble now. <laughs> why did I tell him we're going to interpret this dream when I don't really know? So we better pray. We better pray. We better seek God in this moment. And that's what Daniel does in the contextualization of the gospel. He seeks God in that moment. And he prays to God. And then in verse, uh, when he receives this vision, right, in the very end of that, when he receives vision in verses 20 to 23, is a bit of this doxology where he gives praise to God. Uh, for revealing to him uh, this vision uh, that he has for King Nebuchadnezzar, and he goes and interprets the dream for her. You see, though the Babylonians were about to drag him off and to kill him, and, and they're doing all these terrible things to the people here, Daniel was able to contextualize by seeking God in all things. So what does that look like for you? No matter what it is in your context, when you're living living when you're living out the gospel in your life, we won't always be with one another because I'm not with you in your work. We're not with each other in your work, well, maybe, unless you're co-workers. But you're not with each other in your work. You're not with one another in your schools, maybe. But if you have this attitude and this prayer of seeking God in all things, I believe in full faith that God will reveal to you what is the right thing for you to do. And if you're not sure, surround yourselves with your other three friends like Daniel did and to pray and to seek God together. And I'm way over time, but I want to end with this illustration. Here, I read this in uh, Christopher West, uh, Fill These Hearts. Uh, and he has this illustration here. And when he read this, and he's like, hey, read this paragraph and see if it makes any sense to you. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes several, uh, some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. One needs lots of room. If there is no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. 
what are we talking about? You read this and you're like, this is rubbish. This makes no sense to me. This paragraph is simply nonsensical. I want to argue here that as Christians going out into the world, as non-Christian, that that's what the gospel sounds like to many people. And the ways that we live out, as the way that we explain it, that's, they're like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And our main role as Christians that live out in the world is to make the gospel understandable. That's the art of contextualization. And it, there's no one answer. It depends on who it is that you're talking about. That most people don't have a framework in the words of Tim Keller, most people don't have the language or have the furniture in their minds to understand the gospel. But that is exactly the task that we have, is to bring a context to contextualize the gospel. Kite. Kite. Now let's read this again. A newspaper is better than a magazine. A seashore is a better place than the street. At first, it is better to run than to walk. You may have to try several times. It takes some skill, but it is easy to learn. Even young children can enjoy it. Birds seldom get too close. Rain, however, soaks in very fast. One needs lots of room. If there are no complications, it can be very peaceful. A rock will serve as an anchor. If things break loose from it, however, you will not get a second chance. Context matters. And our role as Christians in this world is to help to contextualize the gospel, to bring meaning to this life, because people are hungering and desiring it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the message in Daniel this morning. We thank you, God, that you show us what it means to contextualize the gospel. We thank you, Lord, for the faith of Daniel and his friends. Later on, as they're denied to worship the golden idol as they stand in the lion's den, as they stand in the furnace, Father, we thank you, God, for their faith that displayed to all of Babylon who the one true God is. And I pray, Lord, for all of us, Lord, as we continue on in Missions Month, that missions isn't a destination, but is an attitude. So, Lord, as we go forth from this place, may we first experience you. May we first understand you, Lord. May we first come to embrace your love for us and in step, as we go out into the world, may we display the love of Christ. May we live up the love of Christ for all to receive. For them to see who you are. For them to see the goodness of the gospel, the goodness of your grace for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.